Welcome to New Mexico in Focus. I am Kevin McDonald, an executive producer here at New Mexico PBS. And uh, today would be Friday, August 20th, 2021. We have got a lot of serious topics to talk about this week. It's been a heavy week. Uh, I know you've all felt it as well. So many different headlines. And we are going to dive into some conversations with our line opinion panel in this episode. And want to let you know who joined us this week on the line. For those of you who don't know about the show, maybe you're just coming to it for the first time. Uh, this is our podcast version of an online show on New Mexico PBS that airs every Friday night at 7 p.m. Again, Sunday mornings at 7 a.m. And the line is a rotating group of uh, concerned residents here in New Mexico that sign up uh, about once a month to come on and research and talk about uh, different issues and stories from the headlines. It's opinion-based, uh, but again, we are looking for uh, no one with agendas, people really interested in talking about issues important to New Mexico. And this week, we've got a good group. Uh, we have regular Sophie Martin. Uh, she is an attorney. Also, Dan Foley, former lawmaker. He was House Minority Whip. And we were re- welcome back Jessica Onsuras. She's the news director at the Carlsbad Current Argus and in charge of the, the Gannett Group. Um, of newspapers across New Mexico. So always love to have Jessica on board, and it's a good week for it. There's a lot of uh, stories that really have a much different perspective from Jessica's neck of the woods down in southeast New Mexico, and that includes this first topic. No doubt you have heard as of right now. Again, masks required for everybody, vaccinated or not, in most uh, indoor spaces in New Mexico as we creep towards a 1,000 COVID cases a day, most of those of the Delta variant variety. We again know hospital officials continue to tell us most of the new cases are of the unvaccinated, but the cases are climbing at a rate that the governor said she had to do something. There are other uh, mandates in place, most notably proof of vaccination or a clean COVID test for entry into the state fair. I have a feeling we'll be talking about that again. Already a fair amount of backlash around that with the state fair just around the corner. But so much to dig into here on that topic. Let's get right to it. Here's Gene and the line opinion panel. It's back to masks. With cases of the COVID-19 Delta variant spiking among unvaccinated New Mexicans, the governor has ordered all of us, vaccinated or not, to mask up. The governor's latest public health order also has vaccination requirements for some healthcare workers and school staff. Here to offer some thoughts about the order and the reaction to it is our line opinion panel from the Carlsbad Current Argus and the USA Today Network of Newspapers in Southeast New Mexico, news director and editor, Jessica Onsuris returns. Good to see you, Jessica. Returning in line, regular Sophie Martin is back on our Zoom room. And as former New Mexico House Minority Whip, he's right there, Dan Foley, another regular face on our panel. Now, Jessica, let's get going here. The southeast part of the state is home to some of the lowest vaccination rates, as we all know, and not coincidentally, some of the fastest growing case counts for COVID-19 in New Mexico. What's the reaction to the governor's mandate? We don't like it. 
um, and we likely won't do it. Wow. Uh, it seems to be the, you know, we've we've in southern New Mexico um, since the beginning of this pandemic have been very vocal about um, the mandates that have come from Santa Fe um, to protect. Well, I mean, for everybody's good, right? These things are to protect us and to protect mm-hmm. the communities um, that we live in and the rest of the state um, to protect our businesses and our economy. Um, but we still feel that it's a bit of an infringement if you ask most people around here. Mm-hmm. Um, but you are talking about a conservative part of the state that has some um, pretty big um, already issues with Santa Fe and the governor and democratic politics. It's all right. That happens. <laughs> You're a busy newswoman. Apologies. That That's all right. <laughs> um, so, you know, when we we likely expected that there, we had expected that there would be stronger mandates coming. Um, and when you're asking somebody to just wear a face mask indoors, if you're asking a parent to put a mask on their child as they head to school, mm-hmm. you'll likely get some pushback in southern New Mexico. But I think for the most part, local officials um, at the county and the, the city level and school officials have said that they will abide by these new mandates. Mm-hmm. Interesting point. Um, Sophie, I'm interested in your opinion on this. You know, it's not a popular opinion, you know, decision by the governor, no doubt about that. But it's not a surprise either. Is it fair to say this is this was a predictable decision? I think given the rising rates and the news that we've seen nationwide and locally about the Delta variant and COVID and and I think not just how quickly it spreads amongst unvaccinated individuals, but also the fact that it spread it appears to spread pretty quickly amongst vaccinated individuals as mm-hmm. well, although for the most part with different impacts in terms of their health um, for vaccinated folks. No, I, I don't think it's a real surprise. And and most of what I'm seeing is kind of a resignation. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, yeah, it, it seemed like this was probably coming, something like this. Mm-hmm. What may be a little bit more surprising to people, though, are the variety of mandates uh, relating to vaccines. I think that is probably where we're going to see more pushback in the courts. Um, You know, I'm, I'm not a betting woman, but so far, it seems to me that the mandates regarding vaccines that have come out across the country and in New Mexico have been pretty carefully tailored to to cover those groups that state government, at least in our case, that state government does have some authority over. Mm-hmm. And um, so I, I suspect that those mandates may survive court challenges, but I also expect those challenges are to come. Interesting points there. Hey, Daniel, you know, the governor also implemented a hard and fast vaccine mandate for some hospital workers and those in, you know, congregate care facilities like nursing homes. And there are a few exceptions in a tight dead, a timeline. Do you expect most providers to abide, meaning, you know, we've gone through this lap once and now providers, they got pretty beat up the first lap around. Is it going to be a different attitude this time? Yeah, I, I, you know, I think there's a difference between what the providers are going to do and what the employees are going to want to uh-huh. do. And, uh, you know, I think you may get a lot of buy-in from businesses that say, okay, maybe we should do this. I'm not sure you're going to get a lot of buy-in from, you know, at this time, if you haven't been vaccinated I, by now, I'm not sure there's much that's going to you know, energize someone to go get vaccinated. I mean, the the holdouts seem to be people that don't believe uh, they should get vaccinated. And, you know, quite honestly, the handling of this thing so far just keeps leading these people to have more and more uh, trepidation towards doing this, right? I mean, we were told get the vaccination, then we get the vaccination, then you're told now you're part of all the mandates, even though you are vaccinated. Now they're telling you you got to get another booster shot, potentially, Mm -hmm. if you've been vaccinated. Um, It just, the message has just been, 
horrific. And so I think that not only are you going to continue to get pushback from the folks who refused it, I could tell you from uh, a lot of people I know who were early on vaccinated, mm-hmm. uh, folks who have not been ones that have been like, you know, all oh, this is a conspiracy. It's, you know, this is the way somebody's trying to take over the world. There's a lot of people now that I've talked to that are like, yeah, something's wrong here. This is just not right. Mm-hmm. And so um, I, I just think that you're going to see a more growing sentiment, and I'm not sure well, the Dan, answer. Dan, let, me, let me ask you this, though, too. Is there a risk? I mean, I'm seeing on Facebook a lot of folks to providers are saying they're going to leave the state. You know, people who work in hospitals are saying, I got a lot of options, uh, either direction, all three directions out of here across the state. Yeah, line, no, it's, you I know? mean, we have a tough time attracting uh healthcare workers, especially specialists. I mean, you start talking about, like you like look for a pediatric neurologist in New Mexico, ain't happening, you're not getting it. Um, you know, I, I hear the, that, but that, on mask use, is that enough to drive someone out of the state? Uh, the, I don't the, think it's, I think that mask use in conjunction with the consistent barrage in, in people's minds of an erosion of their freedom and not getting a straight answer mm-hmm. is I think something that's going to cause people, especially for us, when you can go left or right from New Mexico and go to a state that's definitely not in the same uh, movement as New Mexico is. And, you know, you, especially you start looking at this, you start looking at this southeastern part of the state, you can live in Carlsbad or you can live in Lubbock. You know, there's a 50 minute difference between the two right. and one of them changes the outcomes and what you're allowed to do. I think it's going to affect places like that dramatically. I got to swing back to Jessica on that note for sure. First of all, on a personal note, are you comfortable where you live without seeing people all unmasked like that? You know, you're talking about for for as, as big as Carlsbad is and as for an important role at Southeast New Mexico plays in the state. Mm-hmm. You're talking about a relatively small community where people talk to each other and know each other and consider each other family and friends and colleagues. Um, I can say on a personal level, I am comfortable back at work. Mm-hmm. I'm comfortable among my family. I am comfortable among my community. But that's because I'm among people that I know and whose situations I understand and who have been, for the most part, very um, accommodating when it comes to doing um, what's required to keep each other safe, mm-hmm. right? So that's we are talking about a very rural community as well. So we have um, families within this community who do as, as Dan said, right? They, their response to all of this is, you know, we don't believe you. Um, we don't trust what you're telling us about um, why it's important we do these things and we're just not going to comply. Mm-hmm. Sophie, the big one I'm hearing a lot of chatter is you gotta have a mask to get in the state fair. And a lot of folks that are- is, That's a big one. That, well, it's not <laughs> just a mask, right? Or, right? And vaccinated, that's right. Mm-hmm. Right, vaccine or recent negative test. Um, you know, it's funny, just as a side note, I haven't heard much in New Mexico, and maybe I've just missed it about the fact that you can now get um, one-off at-home vaccine tests through drugstores, through mm-hmm. Amazon, et cetera. Um, and so it is not just you have to drive through the state fairgrounds to, mm-hmm. to which I think you actually can't do anymore. How's that going to go not, down, very, gonna go down very, at the gate? They're not very good, though. I mean, the, the, mm-hmm. the, the ratio, a friend of mine has to do them for his work, and they're wrong more than they're right. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's not actu- actually quite correct. But, but no, they're not as good as some of the other tests, but the advantage is you know, not that I'm selling these, but the advantage is that you get an answer while you're still at home. But the, you know, I think the state fair is is one of those examples of, you know, the, the governor believes that she has the power over state-sponsored activities mm-hmm. and is is going to use that. What we have seen in some cases is that 
when for people it becomes more inconvenient not to have the vaccine than to have the vaccine and if they don't have a strong ideological reason for not getting it mm -hmm. they'll go ahead and get it and so we do we do see some of that one thing that i think is really interesting that that dan brought up just just a moment ago Quickly, is this issue of the booster yes um you know, so I was speaking to a pharmacist in another state the other day, and he said, we're checking really carefully to make sure you really qualify for a booster. And I checked on the state's website, New Mexico's website today. If you haven't already told them that you have one of those pre-existing conditions, they won't sign you up for a third shot at this point. Oh, wow. We know that over a million people have already gone ahead and somehow finagled or, you know, in, the, in certain cases, um, have gotten their doctors, their doctors okay to get a booster shot. But there does appear to be quite a bit of demand around that mm -hmm. um, around that third shot. Interesting point. Gene, I think I think before Gene, I think before you Please. go, I think it's also important to say too that you know we're having this conversation about people not wanting to get vaccinated at the very same time that uh, both of our U.S. senators said that to come into this country, you don't have to be vaccinated. You don't get to be tested. But yet, you know, New Mexico citizens, we're going to send down a mandate that says you can't do things to be and you have to be tested. That's the kind of message that people are saying, hold on a second. Mm -hmm. If we've got this run on the border and you're letting people in that they don't have to be vaccinated and they don't have to be tested. But you're telling me that I have to be vaccinated. I have to be tested before I go to school, before I go to my job, before I go out to dinner. That's, I think, the kind of message that is consistently dividing people in the state that are saying enough's enough. Good last note there. More to come on this front in the weeks and months ahead. Now, we'll have to leave it there. We're on the crime beat when the line returns. More heavy news, unfortunately, but an important topic uh, as well, and that is crime, especially here in the Albuquerque area. It's something we have talked about ad nauseum, it feels like, uh, for quite a while, but there does not seem to be any relief in sight. You uh, have lots of things to point out. Just today, Friday, there's an officer involved shooting. We're waiting to get more information about that. Yesterday on Thursday, we had four officers involved in a shooting uh, with injuries, two suspects apparently out of a botched uh, robbery. Um, and uh, just last week, tail end of last week, we had a deadly shooting in front of the Ojos Locos restaurant in Uptown, uh, immediately followed by the tragedy at Washington Middle School where one student was shot. Uh, police say trying to um, protect a student against bullying. Uh, just tragic situations all the way around. The governor has said that she is going to make uh, crime legislation a priority in the upcoming legislative session. There are ideas floating around there. There are laws on the books, most notably ERPOs, or red flag laws, which would allow in certain situations for police to come in and, and um, take away a gun until a legal proceeding could happen in the most dire of situations. Uh, that was passed a couple years ago, I believe now, in New Mexico, at least two years. And uh, recent reporting has found only been used four times in the state. So is that the solution? Is there something else we should be looking at? It's a complicated problem for sure. The governor's obviously making it a priority. She's up for re-election next year. We know it's going to be the issue, along with a uh, multi-use stadium, of course, here in the Albuquerque mayoral election coming up in just a couple months just so much to get into and we really want to know what you 
all think about this issue and this story and this conversation. So do us a favor, leave a message here, reach out to us on social media, Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, Instagram. Let us know what you think is being missed in this discussion, what needs to be considered, how we can get a handle on this situation. And uh, it really will help inform future episodes for you that we bring you information on. So encourage you to do that. But right now, back to Gene Grant. One thing that doesn't suffer from a lack of coverage on local news broadcasts is crime. It's been a particularly tough stretch recently with the shooting death of an Albuquerque Middle School student by what police say was one of his classmates. There was also a deadly shooting at a sports bar in the city's popular uptown area. Now, those high-profile crimes are part of a record-setting year for homicides here in Albuquerque and have sparked a renewed interest in crime legislation as well as another deployment of state police to Albuquerque. And Sophie, it's practically, you know, human nature to ask what could have been done to stop something like the school shooting at Washington Middle School. But in this case, the accused shooter's father had a history of irresponsible gun ownership, as we're learning now. Yeah, I mean, the, this is, I'm not sure that that particular uh, shooting was predictable in advance, mm -hmm. although there had been some, there has been some talk of, well, Other students the, seeing the, shoot, student the, shooter's, with a gun. The, the shooter's father, you know, had a history. He had a 2018 fight at Highlands, which sure, he shot a man. I mean, his mom, you know, attacked another mother in a classroom. He, we might have predicted that he would shoot someone at a, yeah. at a school, but not necessarily his kid. But what we do see is mm -hmm. there's been longstanding um, resistance in the state to legislation that would make the parent more responsible in situations mm. like mm -hmm. this for leaving guns unlocked etc unfortunately in my mind it's the legislation that's been proposed is is not necessarily strong enough i mean it's a misdemeanor that's been proposed under what's now called benny's law mm -hmm. um but it is at least a start but there does not appear to be a lot of appetite despite many of the high profile shootings we've seen around the country and in the state um for stronger regulation in those circumstances we know we, i mean we know children do not have fully developed brains and right. we we acknowledge that their parents should be responsible for decision-making for children, mm -hmm. um, but somehow we fail to establish that parents will be uh, responsible for this type of decision-making, certainly not at the level that um, that seems to be mm -hmm. necessary. I should remind folks, as, as we record this, we're also flagging the unfortunate situation with two officers shot in Northeast Albuquerque Thursday morning, so we're Considering that as well as we discuss this, and Daniel, let me move on here, that New Mexico has a red flag law on the books to temporarily seize guns from people deemed a threat to themselves or others. It's been used four times since it went into effect. And I should point out that the 2018 shooting wasn't even charged, he wasn't even charged by APD and predates the seizure law. But is there an opening for more effective use of that particular law here? Yeah, I, I'm not sure that, that, that there's an opening for a more effective use of that law i think that it just begs the question of why are we not using the laws we have on the books today but that's the why one we, we have on the books in... let's talk about that particular one we have a red flag law that was vi vigorously debated for the exactly these kind of situations this is not is this not the right yeah. time yeah but i don't know what you mean that law is to these situations the, re the red flag law was going to keep the kid from being around a gun 
I mean, the problem, the problem is that the kid, the kid's got a problem, right? And the kid hasn't learned, in my opinion, that there's consequences for your actions. In 2018, he saw his father shoot somebody Mm -hmm. or knows that his father shot somebody and nothing happened to the guy. He didn't get prosecuted. So that tells a young developing mind that that level of escalation in a violent situation is okay. Mm -hmm. Because listen, my dad did it and nothing happened to my dad. And so I think it comes back to not the fact that we should be expanding laws and putting new laws on the books. We have a problem with enforcing the current laws we have on the books and holding true criminals accountable. We're more interested with talking about getting people out of jail with no bail, getting people to trials really quick so that we don't hold them in jail any longer. And yet we're having this recidivism rate amongst these people. A lot of these individuals that we're talking about, once they are finally captured or shot in New Mexico, it's rare to see a story that we're like, oh my gosh, Gene Grant is the guy that shot somebody. He has no criminal past. I mean, it seems to be every time we find this out, it's individuals with a lengthy criminal record with a revolving door policy in our state and in our country now that seems to be, you know, the the idea is, you know, the the rights of the criminal trump the rights of the victim. And the answer seems to be, well, let's go create more laws. And we all know this. The only people that laws are going to be followed by are people who wish to follow the laws. And these individuals are not law abiding citizens. Mm -hmm. So. I think, you know, before we start saying, let's put another law in the book, we need to look back at why this these situations are happening when you're the son or the daughter or the family member of someone who gets away with committing a violent crime and doesn't even have to go to court over it. That's a problem. Hey, Dan, we're just getting word that Republican leadership is calling for some talks about crime legislation, meaning not supporting it, but they just want to get their voice in special session. Sorry, my fault there. Uh, to talk about this, what your initial gut reaction? Is this worth a special session in the cost and everything? I mean, listen, I don't, I don't know what law. You know, to me, this problem with gun violence, uh, it, it, it's almost, it's not just a, it's not just a New Mexico problem. I mean, look what's happening in Chicago and New York, and it's a, it's a country problem in New Mexico. In New Mexico, I think that, you know, you're going to have a hard time anytime. I mean, we're a majority rural state and even in pretty Democrat areas when these folks get up and go hunting and they do the things they need to do. I think we I think that there's going to be a serious conversation. I hope there'll be a serious conversation about before we pass 25 new laws. Why are we not enforcing the laws that are currently on the books? Mm -hmm. Maybe giving the maybe giving the DA's and the judges more discretion to put folks uh, to handle these cases other than making mandates that they be turned out and we wait trial and hope they don't commit another crime. Jessica, I'm curious how this all rings in your part of the world in southeast New Mexico. I mean, we're talking about something sort of Albuquerque specific here, but how does this hit your ear? Well, first of all, let me give my condolences to the family and friends of Benny Hargrove. It was such a sad situation to hear. Mm-hmm. And even if it happens in northern New Mexico, we're all affected by it um, right. throughout the entire state. Mm-hmm. Um, I will say that I, I'm along the same vein as Dan on this. I think people are going to look at this, um, the proposed bill, and think of it as another attack on their right to bear arms, um, especially in New Mexico. You do have a population where we are, you know, we own guns. Um, We use them for sport and recreation and for self-protection. And I think that I'm with Dan when we say that it's it's a moment now to look at what can we do, not about gun possession or securing our guns, but really take a look at what are the root causes of violence that just happen to involve a gun. You know, we're in a state where there is a severe lack of mental health Um, resources that can contribute to this type of thing. We're in a state where we have um, a huge population that's below the poverty line that are um, more vulnerable to um, domestic violence at home and and where kids are placed in a system 
or in a situation where they can be exposed to violence and act that out in their own um, in schools, in their own societies, in their own um, social circles. Mm -hmm. So it's it's in our view um, better to pause and take a look not at how do we punish gun owners who, for the most part, um, I think some might argue are responsible gun owners, but how do we address the violence um, that or the issues that lead to this type of violence? Good points there. Yeah, Sophie, do we have, is there a problem with violent culture in Albuquerque? What I mean by that is one of the relatives of the sports bar shooting said at a news event that would be, quote, be justice either way, end quote. I mean, that's a hard quote right there. You can't begrudge her certainly that emotion, but is that a response we can live with? I mean, it sounds like revenge is in the air here. That is a very hard quote. And, mm -hmm. and not knowing more about the context of that shooting makes it difficult, I think, to understand exactly what the dynamic is. Mm -hmm. um, you know, one of the things that I think is really tough going back to what Jessica was bringing up about the need for social services, the need for better intervention with, and Dan as well, with, with people who we know may, um, may be on uh, the path to violent behavior, mm -hmm. um, is, is that it seems that the same legislators, the same advocates who are saying, no, 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 this is a Second Amendment right and mm -hmm. we can't do anything about the guns, are also opposing increased funding for social services, for intervention, um, and for health care for individuals, for instance, with mental health right. health concerns. That and, and to be clear, because I think it's important to say this every time, when we talk about individuals with mental health concerns, they folks folks who um, experience mental health issues are more likely to be victims of crime right. than to perpetuate it. Thank you. Um, but you know, so how how do we overcome this? That it is the same loud group of folks who are saying no to this, and then on the other side, no to these other solutions as well. We have just have not gotten past that, and mm. I and I don't see when we will. Mm. Selfless plug time here. Going to take a break from the line and talk about another one of our projects here at New Mexico PBS. Hopefully you've heard us talk about Growing Forward before, but it's a podcast covering uh, the cannabis industry in New Mexico as legalized sales for recreational use cannabis just around the corner uh, spring of next year. There is a lot going on. It's Fast and Furious and Growing Forward is uh, kicking off season three. Uh, we recently released the third episode of season three with our co-host, Megan Camrick, a correspondent here and news director at KUNM. Also, Andy Lyman of the New Mexico Political Report. He's been covering the cannabis world, especially medical cannabis, up till now for a long time. Two great people to have on board on that project. And this third episode was all about testing, something we haven't talked a lot about yet on the podcast, and it's fascinating. Uh, if you're a licensed cannabis producer in New Mexico, testing will be a requirement for your product. And as of right now, there's one lab. And Andy and Megan visited that one lab to find out about their operation and what they're considering, how it works. And so it's a field trip. We take you to uh, his lab and learn all about the process and the challenges he's facing getting up and running in this as well. Uh, there aren't even licenses or the rules promulgated for that yet. That'll come after producers. Uh, so lots to be decided there, but a really fascinating conversation. We'll give you a taste of that. 
as this lab owner talks about the big question in terms of how many labs do we need in New Mexico to handle the business as it gets up and running? Do we need five labs here? Do you think five labs can come to New Mexico, spend multi-million dollars on infrastructure, and then be supported by the, the license holders that are here? You know, and, and if that's the case, is quality going to go down because everybody's competing for the cheapest price or the fastest turnaround? You know, it, we run into a lot of other problems. And it doesn't serve anybody if all five labs are in Albuquerque, right? Exactly. This is a big state with no delivery mechanism, and so I think that they should be parceled out across New Mexico. Um, but again, we'll have to see where the new licenses pop up and how many there are to determine the amount of testing that needs to be done. All right, one last trip around the line round table. These days, still a Zoom virtual table, but a table nonetheless. And as always, we want to thank our opinion panelists for the time they take to research and to dedicate to this discussion each week. It is super valuable, and we really appreciate all of their efforts. Uh, the last topic here this week, uh, you may have seen that the first batch of census numbers for New Mexico from the 2020 census count were released. Main takeaways from that are that our urban centers are growing and our rural areas and communities in the state are shrinking. Now, that may not come as a huge surprise, but it has major implications with the redistricting process that is ongoing right now. Uh, and in terms of representation, both in the U.S. Congress, in the Roundhouse, um, cities, uh, school boards, you name it. There's a lot to consider there. The redistricting process is underway in earnest right now. And it, all of this may shape up to a very different landscape in New Mexico, especially from a political standpoint. And again, it is great to have Jessica Ansuras from the Carlsbad Current Argus with us this week to talk about how those census numbers were um, being received there in Carlsbad and Southeast uh, New Mexico. So for one last time this uh, week, here are the line opinion panelists and Gene. We've often spoken of the rural urban divide on this show. It's been manifesting itself for years now. The latest census data bears it out showing 20 of New Mexico's 33 counties losing population. Now, while the state overall isn't gaining many residents, most of the counties that show the biggest gains are home to New Mexico's largest cities. Now, when it comes to the census, fewer people means less money. But beyond that, Dan, what's the upshot here? What, what's, what are we being told here about New Mexico? Well, I think, you know, definitely that there's a there's a an influx. I think I think if you look at the data, there's an influx of people from out of this out of this state moving into the state from you know bigger states right people leave in california people leave in new york and they consider albuquerque to be a much smaller town mm -hmm. and they're they're willing to settle in in albuquerque where in the past you would find somewhat of a of a of a combination of people not only moving to places like albuquerque but moving to towns like roswell and carlsbad because they'd still want that that uh, community I, I, you know you got to remember too when you look at these percentages when you go to places like catron county if they lose one person it's a huge uh, it's a huge swing in, in the demographic breakup. But, you know, the one thing that is interesting to see is that, you know, the counties that are really losing folks are heavily Republican counties in New Mexico. Yeah. It's going to have a huge outcome in uh, 
in, in legislative races. Can I, can uh, I, can I ask, you to, can I ask yeah. you to hold that? I got something for you on that very subject coming up here in a little bit. But let me swing to Jess, Jess on that. Obviously, you know, you're right in the middle of it, Jessica. You're seeing folks. What, what, on the ground, what does this mean as a fundamental change to New Mexico in those counties that, that population's losing? You know what? It's it's kind of interesting that Dan said that we are actually growing in southeast New Mexico. Uh -huh. Eddie County, Lee County That's has true. had some of the highest returns um, for the census in mm -hmm. growth. And, you know, we can attribute that to many things, but most people attribute it to the um, oil and gas industry, which is based in this region, mm -hmm. which is great for us. Um, but you are you're also talking, as Dan said, about um, that shift in politics. You know, we are at looking at rural counties, which are largely conservative. Um, and who already feel disconnected from what's happening in, you know, the center of the state and its urban populations. Um, so you talk about that urban rural divide that might the consequence might be just that you see that widen a bit more um, and you see a bit more of that um, lack of civility and um, lack of understanding when we all try to come together on issues that affect the entire state. Mm -hmm. So for the power balance in a lot of cities around the country is shifting urban, that's for sure. What are the ramifications for New Mexico? I mean, it's already somewhat Albuquerque centric as it is. Do you know what I mean by that? I mean, it, does this exaggerate that problem? I do. Mm -hmm. I do. I think, and I think that it does. And one of the big challenges that it's going to create for our rural communities is, um, you know, potentially less of a customer base for their businesses, mm -hmm. less opportunity to attract doctors and pharmacists mm -hmm. and lawyers. Um, I worked earlier on a, a couple years ago on a project trying to address um, the lawyer shortage in rural parts of the state. This does, does not help. Um, and so, I mean, I think one of the real concerns is there'll be a contraction, especially of essential services mm -hmm. for parts of the state that are seeing shrinking populations. It's already a struggle to keep hospitals open in, That's right. in many parts of the state. And so, um, you know, I, I, people do what they do. And the, the move to cities um, is not something that Although we sometimes talk about like how do we reverse that, et cetera, individuals are going to act in their own self-interest. They're you know what's best. We hope mm -hmm. at least mm -hmm. the economists tell us that they're going to act in the way that's best for them. To the extent that the perception is that you're going to get um, something more, perhaps in the ur urban areas, um, that's going to continue to be a challenge. Mm -hmm. in, for communities in the rest of the state. Mm -hmm. Dan, you started to touch on this uh, in a roundabout way, but many of us have been working from home for months and the concept of going to work is less <laughs> relying on location now. And you just mentioned, of course, folks are moving into certain parts of the state to be able to work from afar. That would seem to be a selling point for smaller cities and towns, right? What's keeping them from leveraging this more yeah, than well, what they I are? Mean, I mean, that's where I think Albuquerque's seen uh, a bigger set of growth than the rest of rural New Mexico. If you're leaving Los Angeles, Albuquerque is a pretty rural community to move to. Good point. You know, mm -hmm. Carlsbad and Roswell are way out in the hinterlands, mm -hmm. right? I mean, that's, that's uh, you know, people still want to get to their Starbucks, want to get their yep. flight options. But the bigger question that's going to arise in New Mexico, I think, in the coming years, uh, in the not too distant future, is going to be the water debacle. I mean, we are in a drought of epic proportion. And as Albuquerque grows, there's only so much water that can go around. And there's places like southeastern New Mexico. Mm -hmm. uh, when you look in that whole car, that whole Pecos uh, River Valley, the whole Pecos Valley, where they've done a great job managing their water over the last 20, 30, 40 years. And there's going to be a move. You watch that says, hey, listen, 
Do we need to be as much of a farming agriculture state and grow alfalfa and grow pecans, or should we be shipping that water to Albuquerque to feed people, to, to give people drink that are moving here? Right. And I think that fight's coming, especially with the recent decisions in the last year or so with the Supreme Court and our fight with Texas. Things are not boding well for rural New Mexico when it comes to water and sustaining the ranching and agriculture industry, mm -hmm. and to some extent, the oil and gas industry. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's under constant fire in this state, not only legislatively, but, you know, you start looking at these water issues, you start telling those guys they can't use the water, they need to drill, drill wells, it's more, it's a, the more better use, the more beneficial use is going to be shipping into the pipeline to Albuquerque. And I think that fight's coming sooner rather than later. There you go. Hey, Jessica, a big one here for you. Is it at all likely, is it at all likely that the 2nd Congressional District will be redrawn to a Democratic district, or does it seem more likely that it's going to become more competitive, something closer to a swing district? What's a little, you know, those are interesting choices there. Um, so, yeah, we are we are looking and we certainly hope that there will be some redrawing of the districts here. Mm -hmm. um, we don't think that there will be a huge shift to um, to Democratic, but we do hope that it might be yeah. one of those competitive swing um, districts. So the. The possibilities, I think, for New Mexico and Southern New Mexico is explicitly in this redistricting process mm -hmm. are um, are great. We are we are much looking forward to seeing what the recommendations are um, at a state level, and then what happens with um, New Mexico as a whole. Right, uh, Sophie. And I'm reminded. Go ahead, go ahead, I'm reminded during the last. Re I'm reminded when I was in the legislature during redistricting. Uh, when your former boss was in, mm -hmm. and uh, I was getting, I was on the redistricting committee, and I would get these unsolicited phone calls. I'd never talked to him so much in all my life from Congressman Tom Udall telling me what a great seat Heather Wilson had, that nothing should be done to change her seat, that she was a great asset. So, you know, when you start talking about making seats more competitive, you have to remember when one becomes more competitive, one becomes less competitive. Fair point. And uh, the folks that are holding those other seats are not going to be as ecstatic about, uh, about finding a way to make them uh, less competitive. And think about it this way. Right now, I believe um, one of, if not the most senior congressperson in New Mexico now is Yvette Harrell, right? I mean, you think of the people that have left and what's been going on. And so, yeah. you know, hey, Dan, Dan real quick, stroke real, that brings. real quick, Dan, let me ask you this. Do Republicans need to change their message in the, in the face of all this in the southern part oh. of the state? Gee, we have no message. Our message left about eight years ago. And, you know, the everybody else is the boogeyman is not a message that brings people together and, and invites them to join your cause. Mm -hmm. We saw that in the last presidential election, and it's going to continue to rain down on us in New Mexico and across the country if we don't figure out a way to to build this party instead of, you know, just spending all our time telling where everybody's wrong. We need so, to leave that up to you and Matt. Sophie, you got 30 seconds on this. You're, you're... I'm not going to disagree with Dan on that one. Yeah. There you go. Well, what did you want to ask? That's right. No, no, no. I'm just, I'm just curious if you had a reaction. And you did. We're, you did. We're out of time this week. Thanks to you all for digging in on the, on the topics this week. I'm back in a moment with a few final thoughts. That'll do it for this episode of New Mexico in Focus, the podcast. I want to thank our New Mexico in Focus team, senior producer Matt Grubbs, also our associate producer, uh, producer of the line, Kathy Wimmer, uh, as well as our great production team that helps us out each and every week, production manager, manager Andy Anthony Lostetter. Gosh, I can't talk right now. We also have Aaron Senna. 
Kevin Maestas, Benjamin Yaza, and Bobby McDermott. Thanks to all of them. And uh, be sure to tune in Monday when we've got a new episode, some more from our show this week, including valuable information about uh, dealing with kids uh, and gun violence, again, out of that tragedy at Washington Middle School. We encourage you to tune in for that. Also, the IPCC um, study on climate change, the global study, over 250 researchers from across the globe. Uh, We are talking to a familiar voice here in New Mexico. Jorge Torres was a meteorologist at KOB uh, TV. He's now in Phoenix, but we wanted to catch up with him about what it's like covering climate change while also giving out your seven-day forecast each and every night. Great conversation. We'll have that for you next time. Have a terrific weekend. I'm Kevin McDonald, your host and executive producer here at New Mexico PBS. Until next time, stay safe, stay healthy.